FOMO, the fear of missing out. We live in a time where we have more options than we've ever had before, professionally, personally, socially, and we're aware of those options because technology allows us to see what's going on in the world around us, shedding light on all the things we're missing out on. This fear of missing out is the awareness of all the options we have and the understanding that no matter what we do, we'll never be able to enjoy all of them. That new thing, that event, that party, that trip. But what if we're so worried about missing the things of this life that we're missing out on the life God has for us? A life more abundant. He gives us the time, treasure, and talents and calls us to join him. It's up to us to decide if we'll stand up and step out to be part of his story, or if we'll continue to live frozen by fear of missing out. Well, this year, one fear that I don't have is missing out on the Super Bowl, quite frankly. If, I mean, that's just me. Um, in fact, next Sunday, if you're in the hospital, give me a call. In years past, if that were the case, I'd say, wait a few hours, or I'll see you on Monday, or do you have the game on? What kind of snacks does the hospital have? This year, I'll come visit. Let's hang out at the hospital. That'd be good. I'm not worried about missing out on that at all. You know, with the whole fear of missing out, you know, sometimes we miss out on, on, on important things. Sometimes we miss out on, on, uh, on unimportant things. But the whole uh, essence of this series is that sometimes our fear of missing out causes us to miss out on what is most important because we are going after the things that are insignificant. But it's good to have you here, here in Bellingham. Those of you in Skagit, good to have you with us. Pastor Brian down there. Those of you in, uh, in uh, Boca Raton at the Trinity Church of God, thanks for being with us. And if you're online streaming right now, it's good to have you uh, joining us today as well. In 2009, there was a man named uh, uh, Simon Sinek, I think is how you pronounce his last name, wrote a book, um, and he also gave a TED Talk regarding the book. What's interesting is the TED Talk just went crazy it has, I think, become the third most watched TED Talk of all times, so over 28 million viewers. But his book in his TED Talk was um, entitled um, Start With Why. And you can read his book, you can buy his book, 248 pages, or you can watch his TED Talk, which is 15 minutes, or the shortened version, which is five. I'm going to give you the 30-second uh, version of this. This is Bob's Cliff's Notes of Start With Why. He talks about these, uh, what he calls the golden circles, three concentric circles. In the middle is why, the next one is how, and the, the third one is what. The essence of his whole, uh, the premise is that most businesses and organizations spend a lot of time on the what of their business or organization. What they do, what they manufacture, what they sell, what they offer, what they have for you. And they might even talk about how. But rarely do they get down to the why. Why is it that they exist? And his whole premise is, we ought to start with the why. And if you have a compelling why that you're passionate about, that will become your purpose for existence. That will not be only your purpose, but it will be the driving force, your motive for the how and for the what. And it will change how you do your business. And as I was thinking about that whole concept, and especially in, in relationship with this FOMO series, I thought about how often the fear of missing out causes us to focus on, in our lives, the what ring of our lives. What do I want to do? What do I want to see? What do I want to experience? What do I want to own? What do I want to accomplish? What am I fearing of, of missing out on? And we might even talk about how is it that we're going to do the what. But as Cynic would say, we need to look at the why and to miss out. And I believe for Jesus, as he was talking to his followers, as he teaches and instructs us, 
He was afraid that we would miss out on what was really important because we would be so focused on all of the what's of life that we would miss out on the why that we even exist. And he would come along many times and say something along these lines. In essence, he'd say, don't let the fear of missing out on what this world has to offer cause you to miss out on the joy of joining in on what the kingdom of God has to offer. And don't let this fear of missing out in this world overshadow the joy of joining in in the kingdom of God and his world. And Jesus would just open this up and he would invite anybody and everybody to join him in this thing of what life is truly about. It didn't matter if you were young or old, educated or not, religious or not. It didn't matter if you were the worst sinner. He just opened it up for everybody. He says, come join me and find out what life is truly all about. To understand why you were created. And it was amazing as he would, as he would offer this in this open invitation. The joy of joining in with him. Of saddling up. Of partnering with him. He would talk about this life. But at the same time, he would, he would give some of the what's and the how's. And some of the time, when he would give the what and the how of this life in the kingdom, the what and the how that he would talk about, how to live life and what to do, was so extreme. What he would ask and what he would require was like almost unthinkable. In that little section that we've looked at in, in each week of this series in Matthew 16, he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. This is how you're going to live. This is what it's going to look like. If you only look at the what and the how without understanding the why, it would be like too much. And a lot of people would hear this and they would walk away. they say, I'm not willing to do that. But Jesus would come back and say, don't forget the why. Why is it that I would say this? Why is it that I would require this? Why would I ask you? It's because I want you to have life. And he would talk about life, not as just a biological existence, and not just as a chronological days or years on this planet. He would talk about this Zoe life, the essence of life. And we sang uh, in the song earlier uh, this morning, we sang that line that says, I was breathing but not alive. And he saw, Jesus would look out and just see all kinds of people who were breathing but not alive. And he would say, I want you to have this life, abundant life, eternal life world-changing life. I, I want you to, to be a, a part of what I'm doing to restore this broken world, a God-honoring life, a God-glorifying life, the very life you were originally designed, created, and appointed to live. Don't miss out on that life. That's the why. As I was thinking about that whole thing and how Jesus would come back to this again and again and again, I thought about a scene out of a, a very old movie. This is going to date me, I know. A very old movie, Crocodile Dundee. Uh, some of you remember the movie. Some of you weren't born when the movie came out, 1986. Mick Dundee comes from Australia, and he goes to New York. And one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie, and, and, and forgive me, I haven't seen the movie in years. I'm not giving a blanket endorsement. Anytime I do this and people go home and show it to their children, they're going, Pastor Bob. I don't remember all the movie, but I remember this scene. He's in New York. He's got a gal on his arm, and a thug jumps out with a switchblade to mug them. She's freaking out because here's this guy with a, with a knife. And she's saying, you know, he's got a knife, he's got a knife. And, and Mick Dundee, this is to me is the classic line out of the whole movie. He says, that's not a knife. And then he does something like this. This is a knife. And he pulls out this big old blade and the guy runs away. And, and as I was thinking about that whole thing, I think so many times Jesus would look at his disciples. He would look at, and by the way, if you ever want to rush the stage, now you know. <laughs> you don't know what all's back here. Anyway, 
Jesus looks at his disciples, he looks at his followers, he looks at us, and we walk around saying, oh, look at this life I'm creating, look at this life. And he's looking at us and he's going, that's not a life. This is a life. And he says, you're missing it. Don't settle. Don't sell yourself short. Don't, don't go after this, this little life. And he would come and he said, if you could just see the life that I have for you, the life you were created to live, it would be worth giving up anything. It's like a pearl of great price. Sell it all and get this life. The life I want to offer you is so much bigger, so much grander, so much greater than your self-centered, self-focused, self-serving life when it's just about your popularity or how much money you have or what you've acquired or what you've accomplished. There's so much more. And that was the why. And if you understand that why, then the how and the what begins to make sense. And he would never sugarcoat it. He would never water it down. And often he would ask his followers as they were listening to this, as they were considering this, to be weighing the cost of the commitment. Think it through. He never said it would be the easiest way. He never said it would be the path of least resistance. In fact, he referred to it as the narrow path. Not everyone would do this, but it would be well worth it. See, when you count the cost of commitment, to say yes to something means you say no to some other things. And sometimes people avoid commitments. In relationships, in business, spiritually, because they want to keep their options open. Some of you may have said, you know, I, I, I'm not going to commit to this. I want to keep my options open. We want our, we love our options. I just read this week that the global, uh, chief global marketing officer, I think was his title, of Starbucks, said when you walk into a Starbucks, there are 80,000 different beverage combinations that you could drink, that you can order. We like options. And Jesus comes along and says, listen, you say yes to this, it's going to mean saying no to some other things. But don't forget the why. And there would be people who wouldn't do it. People who would walk away. We looked at that in the very first week of this series. There would be other people who would buy into it and say, I'm in. And they would give everything. They would commit their whole lives to it. Literally and figuratively, they would give everything. And some of them gave their very lives for this. And as they looked back on life, they would never change a thing. They would say, I, I wouldn't do it differently. If I had it to do over again, I would continue to do this thing. Pa the, uh, the Apostle Paul, he was at one time the greatest opponent of Jesus in his way until he met Jesus, and then he became the greatest proponent of Jesus in his way. And he would say things like this, anything that was to my profit, anything I had, any, in my little life that I built, anything that was to my profit, I now consider lost. I, it's, it's all lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. He said, and I would do it all over again. And he did. I mean, he gave his whole life to this. He traveled all throughout Asia Minor, telling people about his life in Christ, and ultimately it would cost him his life. But he would never regret it, because he discovered something even greater. So one of the, one of the places that he went and told people about this life with Jesus was a little town called Philippi. And in Philippi, he told them about Christ. Many of the people became followers, and they partnered with him. And he wrote them a letter saying, you know, what God started in you, he's going to carry on to completion. And in this letter that he wrote to them, early in the letter, he talks about his prayer for them. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, he says, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. And they have found Christ. And Christ made it really clear. Love is, is, is 
the, the key thing, the, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second, like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus would say, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. He said, I want you to grow in this thing of love, loving God, loving others. And I don't want it to be some shallow, superficial, infatuation type love. I want you to grow in the depth and the knowledge. I don't know if you've ever experienced this where you meet someone and at first you just connect and you like them and they're funny. And then the more you get to know them, the less you like them. And, no, don't point, because some of you married that person. But it's usually maybe someone that you work with or a teammate, a roommate, and it's like, ah, oh, and then the more you get to know them. And Paul comes along and says, listen, the more you get to know God, the more you will love him. I want you to grow in your knowledge. I want you to grow in the depth of your understanding, your insight. I want you to see his character. I want you to know his love, his grace, his mercy. I want you to see his commitment to you, the sacrifice he's made to you, what he's offering to you. The more you know about God, the deeper your knowledge of God is, the more solid your foundation of faith will be. That's this why that will hold you through in those difficult times. If it's just a shallow, superficial infatuation with God, we were at a campfire, we were saying kumbaya, there was this emotion experience, that won't see you through the hard times. But when there's a depth of knowledge about who God is and his character and his love and his grace, that will see you through. He says, and I want you to grow in this so that you may be able to discern what is best. I don't want you to miss out. I don't want you to settle. I don't want you to sell yourself short. I'm afraid that you will miss out on the best that God has for you. Because when you begin to understand and you begin to know God, you will begin to understand and, and, and believe that God's way and God's will and God's word is best. That he knows a little bit more than we do about the life that he created us to live. And then he gives some specifics so that you may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ Jesus. That you would live this life that you were created to live. Now, it's interesting, many of us, most of us in this room probably, we call ourselves followers of Jesus. By the very nature of the word follower, it's saying that we're not the ones calling the shots. The very nature of the word follower means there's someone else that's leading, someone else that's in charge, someone else that's in control, and we are following. But so many times, as we are following Jesus, it's our will and our way that begins to take precedence in our thinking. And maybe, just maybe, in discerning what is best, we need to take our will and our way and put it in the back seat and let God's will and God's way have the say. Now, as some of you are well aware, just because something is in the back seat doesn't mean that it shuts up. <laughs> Again, don't point. So maybe our will in our way could be still this backseat driver that keeps saying, no, 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 I want to turn left here. No, 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 go fast. No, 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 slow down. No, what are you thinking? So you've had some of those in your backseat. Maybe our will shouldn't be in the backseat. Maybe it should be in the trunk. Now, I'm not going to ask if you've ever had anyone in your trunk, but maybe our will and our way should be in our trunk. But even then, when they're back there pounding, maybe they should even be farther. Maybe our will and our way ought to find themselves comfortably in a coffin. That we would die to ourselves and follow God's will and God's way. And here lies the paradox 
the paradox of surrendering my will. This is, this is where we get this idea, this thought that, man, if I surrender my will, that somehow it's the worst thing I could do, my life is over, it, it, there's nothing's going to happen, or I check my brain at the door, I never think, and I don't make any decisions anymore. And, and we get this, this idea that, that to surrender my will and my way would be the worst thing ever. And here's the paradox, and Jesus again in Matthew 16 would say, I know this doesn't seem to make sense to you, but trust me, whoever wants to save his life must lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. You want life? I fear you're going to miss out because you're trying to do it yourself. If you'll let go, and you're so afraid, but if you'll let go, if you'll trust me, if you'll follow my way, my will, my word, you're going to discover what life really is. It's not about checking your brain at the door. It's not about intellectual suicide. It's not about thinking, not thinking anymore. He says it's about thinking different and having a different perspective, a God perspective. And that verse out of Romans chapter 12, it says, Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Thinking different, seeing from God's perspective, understanding his word and his will and his way. Why? So that you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. How he wants you to live your life. So you don't miss out on that. And then he throws in, oh, and just in case you're wondering, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And Jesus would say to us, I think, today, I don't want you to miss out on God's good, pleasing, and perfect will for your life. So today what I want us to do is, I want us to look at an encounter that Jesus had with Simon. We, most of us know him as Peter. And I want us to look at this because all these things come into play. The wrestling of wills, the matter of commitment, the fear of missing out on, on something in life. So if you want to follow along, we're going to be looking at an account that takes place in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. And uh, this, this occurrence happens, again, very early in Jesus' ministry. So he's just started. I'll give you a little, little uh, ramp up to this. Jesus has been in his hometown, which is Nazareth. Nazareth is up in the hill country. It's about 1,100 feet above sea level. Interesting thing about Nazareth, uh, as with any uh, civilization or any dwelling, there's a desperate need for water. Otherwise, they can't live there. I mean, that's, that's the case all over the world. But in that day, you know, there had to be a stream or a lake or a well or wells or springs or what have you. Nazareth, up in the hill country, doesn't have any lakes, no ponds, no rivers, no streams. This little village had one spring, one well, one spring, and that was the source of water for this entire village. Now, if you read in Luke 4 on your own, Jesus has gone to Nazareth. He's, uh, he's taught in the synagogue, and people are so upset. We, we looked at this last week. People were so upset at him. In Luke's account, it says they drove him out to the edge of the city, to the precipice of a cliff, and they were going to throw him off because they thought he was uh, blaspheming, that he was a heretic. They're, they're trying to kill him. And, and this is one of those scenes. I really wish I could be there to see how this transpired. Because in Luke 4, I mean, it, he says, they drove him out of the city to the precipice. They're going to throw him off the hill. And he walked through the cloud, crowd and went on his way. How did that happen? I just, I, I mean, I, in my mind, I picture, he's up there. Here's the mob. They're, they're roaring. And then he turns around and says, these are not the droids you're looking for. 
I am not the heretic you think I am. I will be going now. And he walks through. It, I mean, it just, it's very stated like, he walked through the crowd and went on his way. So he leaves Nazareth, and they're all going, where'd he go, where'd he go? So he leaves, and he travels 40 miles to the Sea of Galilee to a town called Capernaum. If you read the Gospels, Jesus spent the majority of his time in Capernaum. Because he's in this little town that's right on the Sea of Galilee. He's there. He's healing people, healing a lot of people. They're bringing all the people to him. He's praying for them. He's healing them. One specific healing is pointed out in Luke chapter 4. He heals a lot of people, but one specific is pointed out. There's a woman, and she has a high fever, and Jesus goes to her home and heals her, and it happens to be Simon's mother-in-law. Now, years ago, we were in Capernaum, and our, our guide Sam was there, and we were looking at the synagogue, and it was an amazing thing. And we're at this place, and he says, this is where it's believed that Simon's mother-in-law lived. This is where Jesus, this is where Jesus healed Simon's mother-in-law. And because he healed Simon's mother-in-law, that's why Simon denied Christ three times. And then he goes on. So it's kind of a joke. All right, mother-in-law's alive and well for more years, so we got her to deal with. So, so her mother-in-law has been healed. Jesus leaves, and he goes to the surrounding areas, and he's preaching the good news of the gospel and his life with God. And he comes back to this area by Capernaum. This is where we pick up. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's another way of saying Sea of Galilee, same body of water, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. So here's Jesus, and he's teaching, probably telling parables, telling stories like he always does. There's a couple boats over here, and on the other side are the guys who've been out fishing. They're done for the day, but now they're getting the sticks and the twigs and the, the reeds and the grass out of their nets and putting the nets back in the boat and getting ready for tomorrow. They've been out fishing. They're, they're done with their day. And so Jesus is here talking. There's a lot of people. And as he's talking, teaching about the word of God, these guys are probably listening in, but they're, they're re really preoccupied with, with their business, their nets, their whole fishing industry thing. Then verse 3 says this. He, Jesus, got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now, I don't think this was just a eeny, meeny, miny, mo, luck of the draw, let's pick that boat, it's prettier. I think this was very intentional. He picks Simon's boat. Now keep in mind, at this point, Simon is not one of the disciples. That hasn't happened yet. We know that they've had an encounter, but we don't know how much they've connected at all. And so Jesus gets into this boat and says, you know, can I, can I take this out? Can you take me out in this? Simon probably feels a little bit obligated because, hey, this is the guy that healed my mother-in-law, and he's just asking to be in my boat. I can do that. And I wonder, this is just speculation, I wonder as they're going out, because they're not going out that far, but I wonder if Simon says, um, Jesus, you may not remember me, but a couple weeks ago when you were in Capernaum and like you were healing a bunch of people, you went to my mother-in-law's house. Remember that, that gal, and you healed, she had the fever, you healed her, and then she made dinner. That's my mother-in-law, and, and I was there. So they, maybe they, they've never really had a conversation at all. They're kind of having this, this connection. And so Jesus gets out there in the boat, and then it says that, that he, he sat down, which you think, that's good boat safety. Sit down in the boat. This has nothing to do with boat safety. If you th read throughout the, the Gospels, this was very common when a rabbi would teach. 
For instance, when Jesus was in Nazareth, he stood up in the synagogue, he read from the scroll of Isaiah, then he sat down and began teaching. In Matthew 5, he called his disciples to them, they went up on the mountainside, he sat down and began teaching them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. When a rabbi would teach, he would sit down and teach. So Jesus sits down in this boat and he begins to teach. He begins to tell them things about the word of God and the kingdom of God. And I think it's very intentional that Peter is in the boat. Because Peter strikes me as one who's a little bit ADHD. He's always got something. He's always kind of looking around. And here he is a captive audience. Here there's no nets for him to be working on. There's no things to distract him. He's got to be sitting there listening to Jesus. And Jesus has his full attention. And I think there's probably a part of Peter that doesn't mind having a little bit of attention on him. Again, he strikes me as one that's like, I don't mind being up front. I don't mind bad attention, good attention, as long as it's on me. It's okay. So he's with Jesus out on the boat. He's like, check me out. Got my boat. I'm here with this guy. And so Jesus is teaching. What he's teaching on, we don't know. Maybe he's teaching on faith. Maybe he's telling a parable like the pearl of great price of leaving everything for this life that God has. Maybe it's, it's something about sacrifice. Maybe it's about trust. We don't know, but he teaches, and at the end he gives an invitation. Not an altar call. An invitation to Simon Peter. He says this, verse 4. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon... Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. As far as putting out in deep water, not a problem. Simon grew up on this lake. He spent his whole life on this lake. He knows where it's deep. He knows where it's shallow. He knows where there's under, underground little sandbars. He knows where there's the shoals. He knows the coves. He, he knows the lake inside and out. You want deep water? I know where the deep water is. You want to swim? We'll go there. Going to the deep water was not a problem. But he says, go out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. That's something different. And I think this may be the only time that we see Simon Peter not just impulsively saying the things that come to his mind. Because he always does that. Now, let me just kind of imagine with you that Peter is in this boat now and some of the thoughts that are going through his mind. Put out in the deep water, no problem. Let down your nets. That doesn't make sense, Jesus. I mean, we don't fish in the deep water. We fish in the shallow waters. In fact, we don't even have deep water nets. We have shallow water nets. These are the wrong nets for deep water fishing. We don't fish out here. And on, on top of that, we don't fish in the heat of the day. We fish in the night and in the morning. And, and now it's getting warm. And, and why, why would we do this? And, and beside that, maybe he's thinking, beside that, if I remember hearing right, Jesus, you're from Nazareth. And the way I understand it is that Nazareth doesn't have a lake or a pond or a river or a creek. You've got a well. Jesus, you've probably never been fishing in your life, have you? Like, see, I, like, I grew up on this lake, and I know about fishing. Why don't you, you go back to Nazareth, you build a chair. That's your department. But fishing, you, you've never been fishing, Jesus. And I love how Jesus states this, and I wonder if this is kind of a little tongue-in-cheek jab at, at Simon, because he said, put your nets out for a catch, as if to say, Simon, when you come out here in the water, you go fishing. When I come out here in the water, I go catching big difference between you and me. And Simon's going, the only thing I'm going to catch is a bunch of flack from these guys who are looking at me saying, what in the world are you doing? 
And maybe after he's going through all of these thoughts, he finally pairs them down to what wouldn't be too terribly offensive, and he says this, verse 5. He says, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. Like, like I, I hear what you're saying, but, but we tried. Like, we, we fished, and, and they're not here. And we get that. We've had other nights where we didn't catch anything. Sometimes they're here, sometimes they're not. This time they're not here. They'll be back tomorrow or the next day, but we tried. We, we fished the way we know how to fish these waters. Jesus, we know we tried this, and they're not here. And they're definitely not in the deep water. They never are. We know this. We tried. And he's got some really, really good reasons, some real logical reasons that he comes up with. Now, my friend Tom Burke, he used to always say, there is always a good reason to do the wrong thing. Like, you can always find a reason to justify doing something wrong. You can always rationalize it in your mind. You can always come up with some excuse why this one is okay, this time it's okay, why you're the exception. There's always a good reason to do the wrong thing. And a tweak or a twist on that whole concept is there's always a good reason not to obey Jesus. You can always come up with some logical explanation of why you shouldn't, why you're different, why you're the exception, why this wouldn't be the wise thing. There's always a good reason not to obey Jesus. And Simon comes up with some really good reasons why he shouldn't do what Jesus asks. I like what Dallas Willard said. He said, plainly, in the eyes of Jesus, there is no good reason for not doing what he said to do, for he only tells us to do what is best. Like, we can come up with all of our excuses, all of our logical rationale, but Jesus says, eh, that's not a good reason. I'm telling you to do what's best. See, here's what we need to understand about Jesus. He's not into party tricks with his followers. Some of you maybe have trained your dog to leave a dog biscuit on his nose and wait until you tell him. It's a cool little trick to show your friends. Jesus doesn't play those kind of games. Jesus said, I'm not going to do something just to try and trick you. He says, I do the things that are best for you. That's all I'll ever ask for you is something that I know is best for you. So there is no good reason, no matter what you come up with, to not follow and obey. So there's this, this tension, this decision point that Simon's with. He's got to make this decision. Back to verse 5 says, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. And here's this intersection. Jesus is asking them to do something. Jesus' word is very clear. His will is right there. His way is here. Peter's logic, his desire, his wants, all these things. It's coming, it's coming to this intersection of which one is going to win. And here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. He will never force his way. He leaves it up to us for our decision. And when there's this tension... That Peter says, do I go with what Jesus says, or do I do what I think is best, and what I know is right, and what, what makes more sense to me? He makes this statement, and this, this what he's going to say, I, I want you to see this, because this is the phrase that pays. This is the key. I believe that his whole life hinges on this moment, and the statement that he makes is the statement that changes everything for him. It's the statement that I hope every single one of us walk out with today. It's a statement that I wish would become the default in my life. It's a statement I wish that we would memorize, that we would say over and over again. I wish it's a statement that anytime we come up against anything where we're like, I'm not sure about this, this would be our first response. Here's his phrase. But because you say so, 
I will. That's an amazing phrase. Jesus, this doesn't make any sense to me, but because you say so, I will. This is completely contrary to the way I know things should go, but because you say so, I will. I don't want to do this because I don't believe it's even going to work, but because you say so, I will. It doesn't matter what my logic, my reason, my experience says, what everyone else is doing, but because you say so, I will. I think this statement right here changed the trajectory of his life and solidified in Jesus' mind, this is my guy. But because you say so, I will, and specifically, let down the nets. I'm not just going to say I believe you. I'm not just going to know what you say. I'm going to act on what you say. And that's where action really starts taking place in our lives. It's not just knowing God's will and God's word and God's way. It's not just believing those things. It's when we put our action into our beliefs. Isn't that what James would say later in his book? Don't merely listen to the words and so deceive yourself, but do what it says. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus said, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice will be like a man who built his house on the rock. It's not just believing the right things. It's not just knowing the right things. It's living what you believe and what you know. Some of you come out of a Catholic background. And, and you have a, a much higher esteem for Mary than most of us in the Protestant church do. And, and it's a wonderful thing. You may remember in John chapter 2, when Jesus is performing his very first miracle, he's at a wedding, and uh, his mom is there, and he's going to turn water into wine. And Mary says this statement, turns to the crowd, to the guys, and he says, whatever he tells you, do it. So listen. Don't listen to me. Listen to Mary. Mary's saying, whatever Jesus says, just do it. Just do it. That's his mom saying. Do what he says. And it's when they act, when Simon acted on what he knew, what he heard, and he wasn't even sure he believed it, but he acted, that something really miraculous took place. Verse 6 says, when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. This is not only an incredible catch. This is a miraculous multiplication of fish catch because the size of net they had would not have been contained enough fish to fill a boat, let alone two boats, let alone two boats to the point of sinking. It's like Jesus just keeps, the more they bring in, he keeps multiplying fish, which is something he would do again later on. He just multiplies it. Now what's interesting here, and here's a principle that we can see, is that this phrase, but because you say so, I will, comes before the statement, the catch was so great that it began to break their nets and fill their boats. The principle is this. Obedience precedes blessing. To hear God's word and to obey, that comes first. We always say, well, God, if you'll do this, you'll do this, you'll do that. Bless me here, show me this. Then I will follow you and obey you. God says, I tell you what. Why don't you trust me, follow me, obey me, and then see what I'm going to do? Because the obedience and the faith precedes the blessing. The result, verse 8, when, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. 
For he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. Here's the great thing about Simon Peter in this instance. Here's this guy who questions the Lord, pushes back, has some doubts about what Jesus says. Himself is a proclaimed sinner, doesn't have it all together, and is even resisting Jesus. Like, go away from me. I mean, you look at this guy. Here, here he is. He's, he's got doubts. He's got questions. He, intellectually, he struggles. He, he's a sinner, and he's, and he's pushing Jesus away. And Jesus says, that's my guy, <laughs> which is good for us. Because for so many of us, to one degree or another, that's our story. And look what Jesus says. He doesn't say, you know what? You're right. You are a sinner, aren't you? And, and you doubted me, didn't you? Okay, I'll go away. You're, yeah, forget you. No, look what Jesus said. Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of me. Don't be afraid of believing me. Don't be afraid of following me. Don't be afraid of obeying me. Don't be afraid of doing what I said, even when it doesn't make sense to you. And don't be afraid that you're going to miss out if you sign on with me. Because what you will experience is far more. So don't be afraid. And then he says, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything, and followed him. What? They left everything. They're at the, the zenith of their career, the, the height of success. And they walk away from it. I think part of the reason is that what happened in this instance had absolutely nothing to do with fish and their business. Nothing. In fact, this miraculous catch wasn't just about, oh, look what Jesus can do when he goes catching instead of fishing. I think all of this was preparation for greater things, for Simon. Because something happened in that moment when he said, but because you say so, I will. And when he was obedient, he saw the faithfulness of Christ. It set him up for the rest of his life. That he would then walk away and he would follow Jesus and he would not miss out. He would be on the front lines of Jesus in this kingdom and this restoration project. He would be one of the prominent disciples that always talks about Peter first. Peter, James, John. Peter and the others. Not only that, but he would get to be at the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and Moses and Elijah. He was there for that. He was able to be at, at Caesarea Philippi and say those words, You are the Christ, you are the Messiah. And, and Jesus would say, On this rock I will build my church. I'll call you Peter from now on. He was able to walk on water. You can imagine that day, but because you say so, I will. He walks on water. He was able to preach a sermon where thousands of people became followers of Jesus on the day of Pentecost. He would be a missionary that would take the, the message to the Gentiles outside of the, the realm of Judaism. He would become the first pope of the church. What he would have missed out on if he would have followed his will instead of God's will. And I wonder if there was ever a time, years later, as he's just reminiscing and thinking back of that day when Jesus said, put out into the deep water and put your nets down. And I wonder if he ever just kind of plays it out. What if I would have said, no. No, I'm not going to do that. What, what have I missed out on? Not just the big catch, that was cool. But the life that I've been able to be a part of. 
I wonder if you ever sat around thinking, Isaiah was right. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are your ways above my ways and your thoughts above my thoughts. How glad I am that I chose to do the will of Jesus. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. How much I would have missed out on if I wouldn't have done that. And see, for us in our lives, we have these opportunities all the time. Do I go my way? Do I go God's way? Is it about my will or is it about God's will? Do I follow his word? And maybe, just maybe, some of the decisions that you're making right now are preparing you for something so much greater, immeasurably more than all you could ask or imagine. And it all hinges. Will I say, but because you say so, I will. See, even Jesus knew that he would miss out if he went with his will over that of the Father. In John chapter 6, it says this, For I have, Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. That's what's going to be best. That's why in the, in the Lord's Prayer, he would teach us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in my life as it is in heaven, in my business, in my family, in my relationships, in my organization, in my values. Your will be done, not mine. And in his darkest hour, Jesus would pray when it doesn't seem to make any sense, when it goes against everything that he desires and wants, not my will, but your will be done. This is what Jesus knew. And what we need to hold on to is the truth that it is well in his will. It's not always easy, it's not always fun, but it's best. And it's why we were created, it's to live in the will of God. And what if, what if we just got to the point where our default mode was always to say, okay, God, I don't understand it, I don't get it, I know it goes against what I'm thinking, it goes against values, but if it's your will, because you say so, I will. If it's what you want, because you say so, I will. And right now, there may be a decision that you're wrestling with. You know what God wants. You know what you want. Can you say, I don't want to miss out on the best that God has for me. Because you say so, I will. The psalmist writes in Psalm 143, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. And may your good spirit lead me on level ground to your good, pleasing and perfect will. And today as we close, uh, we're going to sing a song that some of the words fit so well with this whole thing. How God has called us deeper and he calls us higher. And we've got to decide. We're going to go with our little life or the life that he has for us. Our will or his will. And to say, but because you say so, I will. Stand and we'll sing this and then I'll close this in prayer.